Hello and welcome to Amplify, supporting young amputees, the Limbless Association's podcast that answers all your questions about life as an amputee. The Limbless Association is a long-standing, user-led national charity that's been supporting lives beyond limb loss for over 38 years. We're here for amputees, their friends and family, clinicians, and anyone who is interested in what it's like to be an amputee. Our activities are based on the fundamental principle that no amputee need cope alone, and we provide support to amputees and their families pre- and post-amputation. Our services include our helpline, volunteer visitor peer support, support and connect hubs, virtual events, our Young Ambassador programme, quarterly Step Forward magazine, and so much more. I'm your host, Ella Dove. I'm an author, journalist, and Limbless Association trustee and Young Ambassador lead. In 2016, I lost my right leg below the knee following a freak accident tripping over while out running. It's been a long journey to rebuild, physically and mentally, but the Limbless Association was there for me throughout, helping me to feel supported, encouraged and empowered. To join the Limbless Association's community, connect with us on social media or visit our website at www.limbless-association.org. So on to today's main discussion. One of the Limbless Association's key messages is the tagline that no amputee need cope alone. Whether you're an amputee yourself or are supporting a loved one through amputation, it can feel like a daunting and isolating experience. And very often people don't know where to turn. Human nature is to seek solace through lived experience, whatever it is you're going through. Speaking to someone else who's gone through the same or a similar situation is invaluable. The feeling that someone really, truly understands is a weight off all our minds. Peer support, as well as feeling valued as an individual, is a key part of recovery. And to talk more about this, I'd like to introduce our two guests for today. Dave Bossenkett is a consultant vascular surgeon based in Newport. He's passionate about improving the patient experience, especially around the decision-making processes around amputation, and also heads up an amputation research special interest group. Welcome, Dave. How are you today? Well, hello. Thank you very much for having me. I'm fine today. Fab. And next we have Lawrence Blomfield. Hello, Lawrence. Hi, Ella. So Lawrence is a software engineer who became a bilateral amputee in 2009, losing his left leg below the knee and right just above the knee following a motorcycle accident. Twelve years on, he's recently decided to train to become a volunteer visitor for the Limbless Association. And that is where I'd like to start today. So, Lawrence, you've been an amputee for 12 years now. So tell me a bit, first of all, about those early days back in hospital. Must feel a bit like a distant memory now. It is actually, I must say, yes, that's right indeed, although at the time, of course, it seems to last forever, the time that you initially spend in hospital, and especially at the start when, you know, you really can't tell very much about what's going on, it's all so new, your life's turned on its head, and there's there's a lot to grapple with, you know, mm. so, um, you know, uh, uh, that's the initial kind of, those are the initial kind of problems that you have to deal with, I think. Yeah. And did you know anything about amputees? Did you have any idea what to expect back then? I really didn't. No, I guess maybe not uncommon to other other folk out there who have not been connected or exposed, you know. So it was, you know, it was the start of a very steep curve, learning curve for me. Yeah. And so after being in hospital, you went on to inpatient rehab at Queen Mary's Hospital in Roehampton. And I wanted to ask, how beneficial was that to your recovery? And particularly when it came to meeting other amputees there? Well, to be honest, to start with, um, you know, it was a very long period in hospital prior to going on rehab. uh, And I was throughout my journey away. I'd been away from home, not close to home, 
but we took a decision to go to Queen Mary's Hospital because a it's a you know it's a an excellent facility for this, and that b it might slightly reduce the path to rehabilitation by being through being uh, an inpatient for rehab. And as you just said, it's a very special place actually because um, being amongst other amputees, I still feel it now if I go back to Queen Mary's. It, you feel like you're amongst, you know, fellow be fellow beings, if you like. You know what I mean? Basically, it's a very friendly and supportive place. And was it there that you first heard about the Limnist Association or was that later on? Well, actually, um, it was. I, th I think I made contact before then. But um, in fact, at that time, I think Limnist Association were actually based in that, in that, in that area. It was before a bit of a revolution in the organisation, I think. Mm. So um, I think that's what brought it to a head. Definitely. Wish to sign up, of course, that's for sure. And to make contact, like you say, when you start to get your head around the situation that you're in and you get you clear your head of the issues surrounding a constant, you know, visits to theatre and medication, etc., which, you know, leave you very unlike yourself, then you start to think, you know, towards what's in front of you. And uh, as you say, I think everybody needs to speak to someone else who's done those miles. And so tell me a bit about being matched with um, a volunteer then, because am I right in thinking that you had support from a volunteer visitor in those early days? Yes, I did. Yeah, indeed. I mean, the uh, Limits Association took my details and um, matched me with somebody who was also a bilateral amputee. That gentleman was, you know, he'd suffered his uh, through, uh, I think it was through uh, the armed services and he was pretty close to my own configuration, that's for sure. He alluded to one or two things about his, first of all, his situation, you know, he tackled things very well and very positively. That came across straight away, which was massive, I think, for me. And also talking about the uh, adapting, you know, as far as uh, his movement's concerned, he'd reached a certain place which was most comfortable for him. But again, just speaking with him about his experience right from the start, he, was, he wasn't at all, um, you know, sort of inhibited about sharing that with me mm. and what he'd been through. And that resonated greatly with me in terms of what I'd been through myself. It was, you know, it's very hard to find a place for those, those, those uh, memories about what you feel, especially early on in your time. And to realise that somebody else as well has been through those so closely matched as well in, so, in many ways really does put them into contacts. That's powerful. That was very powerful for me at the time. Yeah. And so tell me a bit about your life now. I mean, 12 years on, you're you're pretty active, right? You're working. Um, you know, do you, do you think much about your limb loss on a day-to-day -day basis? I think it confronts you on a day-to-day -day basis, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know if you feel the same. but I try and pretend it's not there often. But... <laughs> They haven't grown back yet, so I think I'm stuck with them, really, to be honest, But uh, as they are. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think that um, one of the things I grasped, I think once you get your head around and you start looking forward and you start looking for solutions to your situation rather than wondering why you're in that situation, that, that for me, made a big difference. Tackling things positively, I, I encountered a much different, you know, uh, reaction from those around me, both, you know, in the Wasserman Hospital and also when I was in rehab. You get as much as you give, you know what I mean? It really does make a difference, although I realise it's up to the individual to realise exactly what the situation is and how to move forward for the best. But um, it, it doesn't stop there either. The first thing I'd wish any amputee, uh, you know, coming out of hospital is patience, the patience to see through 
their journey to the end. I mean, it took five years for my left leg to heal and, uh, you know, various things, you know, I could list of treatment from the treatment side. It's, it delays things. But beyond that, of course, getting out of hospital, I think everybody who's had their life reset in such a way, for me, I just wanted to get back to normal as quickly as possible. And that included work. And I was always into sports before. So I, I looked to resume or to replace the things that I had uh, that that uh, I'd done before with other things, you know, other solutions. And um, they, there are those solutions out there to pursue, definitely. And they're just as important as they are for, for, for the able, you know, to pursue. That's for sure. Just as important mm. and engaging and rewarding, you know. So mm. I was pleased to be able to return to work also to be able to um, return to all these activities, several which I pursue currently, and some I've added since I've applied this new path, as it were. Oh, go on then. Tell us about these activities. What do you do? Well, the couple of others that I started, believe it or not, was I joined a local archaeological group. And so there was a really fascinating local project, community-based project. And to be able to join, to be able to participate was fabulous. I'm still interested and still engaged in that particular project and the other one was there was a really excellent work-based choir at my my company which I joined because I'm not and I've not done that previously so it was an opportunity to do and it was a very good opportunity and had some fabulous times really have been I tend to say that's maybe the real reason why I joined my company was to join that choir one of the best things that's happened along the way yeah singing is definitely a very powerful thing isn't it definitely agreed Yeah, I'm in a choir too. That's why I say that. So Dave, I'm going to come to you now. So I mean, as a clinician, how important do you think peer support is when it comes to recovery post amputation? Well, it's interesting because it's something that I'm, I'm obviously a surgical consultant. I started about two years ago, but coming through training, you don't really think about it. You quite literally, your, your, your job is to do your job. And your job is a technical job and your job is to support decisions before surgery and your job is to medically support patients after surgery. And then our point of discharge, generally speaking, we don't see patients again. Or if we do, we might follow them up once or twice or we see them if there's a problem. But in broad strokes, you're on to the next thing. You're busy. You work a busy job. There are lots and lots of patients. And if they're discharged from hospital and they're not in your clinic, generally speaking, they're not something which is in the forefront of your mind. So it's actually, it took a while for me to really clock about the value and importance of peer-to-peer support. Yeah. And tell us a bit about the amputation special interest group you're involved in, because it's a national initiative set up by the Vascular Society, right? So talk to me about that and the main objectives and how it kind of benefits both clinicians and amputees. Yeah, so the Amputation Special Interest Group was set up and its primary task was actually to find out what are the important research topics for both patients and clinicians and carers in the, in the context of amputation surgery. And, and that's actually a very important question to ask because, for example, I as a surgeon could say, oh, I know an important question to ask and could spend lots of time and resource and money on this specific thing, but not actually answer a question which is clinically relevant to people who actually go through this. So it was a very um, valuable exercise, I think. So earlier in this year, we held a remote group where we had patients, carers, and various clinicians, so the surgeons, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, and we essentially sat down in a day deciding what were the most important research uh, questions out there that we should be spending our time uh, researching. And 
what do you think the sort of benefits are of of that kind of patient involvement when it comes to the the decision making process? I mean, how are you? Is that something you're particularly passionate about? Yes, I mean, actually, so this is this is sort of my entrant entry into the volunteer visitor program and peer-to-peer support was actually maybe a step before that. It's the question about how we make decisions as to whether or not amputation is the right thing for a for a patient. And when I say we, I mean both surgeons and patients. The problem is with amputation surgery, certainly with vascular surgery, is it is sort of viewed as a failure. Mm-hmm. It's because of a failure we've we've been unable to salvage the limb. And I think because of that, surgeons have been reluctant historically to evaluate it, to research it. Now, you look at other areas of medicine and you've got very clear guidelines about how you should manage various aspects of, I don't know, other types of surgery, um, high blood pressure, for example. You'll have an algorithm of what to do. Whereas when it comes to amputation decision making, there just isn't that robust um, uh, guidelines and there's no robust evidence to sort of back you up in terms of decision making and what happens is that surgeons me included everybody included are this mishmash of biases and so we bring our own bias to the table to decision making and it can mean that people can have very different treatment depending on which surgeon turns up and speaks to them Mm. and as a basis there was this question which i had which was sort of how can we improve that shared decision making between a patient and a surgeon before amputation. And that was um, a, a bit of research which is currently still ongoing, but that, that really started off my interest in this. I do think it's fascinating. I, I've mentioned on the podcast before, I had a sort of encounter with one of my vascular surgeons as an outpatient where he said he, he'd struggled to look at me when I was on the ward because he kind of saw me as his failure every time he looked at me. And we had a really open and frank conversation about it. But I'm really, really interested in in that kind of perception, because, of course, you know, for me and for Lawrence, we've got our lives back and we are doing you know, activities and all the rest of it. Of course, that's not the same for everyone, but it's really interesting. I mean, are you interested then as as a clinician in that sort of post-hospital recovery? Because as you say, you don't don't see that often. So is that something that you're interested in researching more? Definitely. So so the story behind how I got involved in it or interested in it was that we held um, some focus groups this was probably a year or so ago and asked amputees about research which I was involved in one was involved a pain research study and another one was this one is about shared decision making and we had long talks in both of them and the amputees who came along were really engaged and they had a lot of interesting discussion at the end they said Dave that's that's very interesting but I tell you what when I had my amputation, or when we had our amputations, we didn't have anybody to speak to. And what happens is you, you're in hospital and you get regular reviews by the surgeon, by the nurses, by the specialist physiotherapist, everybody, everybody. And then you go home and it's like you're on your own. Mm-hmm. And they said, if I had just had somebody there to, to speak to about what real life is like, you know, not about the surgery itself or medicines or antibiotics, but about life itself, it would have been so helpful. And it's it's rare. In fact, I'd say it's very rare for us for for somebody who's been through it, for a patient really, to come to a group like this and say, "This is actually what you should be researching." 
Well, um, it led us as a group of both patients, me and some of the specialist nurses from the unit to the Limbless Association. I'm delighted to say that one of the members of the group has actually signed up for the volunteer visitor programme and is leading on the Welsh aspect of it. But I mean, it, it just shows how we as clinicians need to listen to patients because it would have been a complete blind spot to me otherwise. And I think, to be honest, if I were to ask my colleagues around the country, it would be a blind spot for them. Yeah. So what do you think then is the the value of these peer support programmes? I mean, obviously, you've, as you said, you've only recently or relatively recently got involved. So, I mean, what do you think that that peer support programme, such as a volunteer visitor scheme, can provide that perhaps clinicians may not be able to? Well, I, I wonder if it's just coming right back to what you said at the beginning, which is that, you know, no amputee may need cope alone. And I think I see a lot of patients who are who are terrified and they can't imagine a life after surgery. They quite literally they can't envisage living. It's like their life is over. And we can say things like, oh, well, we think your prognosis would be okay. We think you're likely to ambulate. We think that your stay in hospital will be this, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not people who've been through it. We're not people with lived experience. Um, and having that as a as a tool, really, the Limbless Association Volunteer Visitor as a tool to be able to say, look, please, can you speak to somebody here, either before surgery or immediately after? I, I mean, the value of it, I think, just is is obvious and speaks for itself. Definitely. And Lawrence, I'm coming to you now because obviously you and I have both recently trained to become volunteer visitors. So why is it now feels like the right time for you to do that and to use your experiences to support others? I've always wanted to do this and I have approached the LA before along the way, but um, they're extremely well organised, particularly at the moment. And the VV setup they have, the approach, including engaging people, how they're engaged, how it's being handled is extremely professional and reflects really well upon the LA, if you ask me. Definitely the right time. I've always wished to, uh, to, to at least be able to give this back. I would say it's a responsibility, but I definitely want, you know, I definitely wish to, always wish to give it back and try and make a difference if I can, based on what I've experienced. And for those that may not know, who haven't trained to, to do the scheme, what, what does the training involve? I'm asking you as if I don't know myself, but... <laughs> Pretend I don't know. <laughs> I won't test you on it then, yes. But it covers various aspects, actually. You know, active listening, dealing with different aspects of uh, of that of those meetings which you have, how best to deal with them. It's focusing upon what you know, of course, and being able to empathise with that person that you're meeting, you know. And if they require to know more about you, then obviously to, sh- to tell them more about that. But th- there's also um, in these kind of arrangements these days, there's official matters to be dealt with, with as well. So safeguarding and stuff like this are also covered by the course. It's a very interesting course in many ways. The education uh, part of it, I think, is very is very interesting and could lead to, I mean, it's, I think that's just good information to have full stop, actually, but obviously particularly appropriate to this particular job. So uh, it's been very engaging, uh, very enjoyable thus far, I must say, and I look forward to the rest. Uh, and of course, most of all, look forward to making contact with our, our amputees along the way. Definitely, of course, because it's, it's early days for you and I. So I imagine you haven't been matched with anyone just yet. No, no, that's right. Indeed. I know they said that it could happen any time. But of course, um, the association will try and match you uh, sympathetically according to that person and your own personal kind of uh, experiences. So 
Mm. It won't apply to everyone. Although I know that obviously there's a lot of these matters coming up. A lot, of, a lot of these things happening. Definitely. I think it's so important um, that matching what you touched on there about matching to people who have similarities because, you know, not all disabled people are going to all be friends. You know, it's <laughs> I like I, it's really good that it's that sort of tailored approach, I think. Agreed. Agreed. And so what would you say then, Lawrence, are the main things that you wish that you'd known in the early stages that you'd like to pass on? It all depends very much upon where they are on their journey, I think. That's for sure. Mm. but in my situation definitely early on whilst I was in hospital there's the clinical side the medical you know the you know in terms of you know the medicine etc and stuff like that and putting your mind at rest you know if you're not used to feeling the way that you do and the things you come across but of course beyond that then there's a there's an absolute raft of matters there's you know uh where to start with a wheelchair if you require it as course prosthetics there's the occupational therapy approach and in terms of uh, getting things sorted back at your house and all that kind of stuff and of course I was fortunate in a way to have a sympathetic company behind me in terms of any potential you know return to work and I was also in a profession which wasn't necessarily challenged by my change of life so there's also issues arising with regard to your ability to work your ability to earn and the issues that arise because of that so there's an absolute mountain of stuff you're faced with that time whilst at the same time trying to get yourself well you know what I mean which is perhaps the priority. And 12 years on then would you say that you're in a place of acceptance do you still have kind of ups and downs and you know how how are you psychologically now? I've always kind of forged forward to be honest Ella you know in all honesty mm. of course as we said right at the start we still have these you know issues don't we on a day-to-day basis I've got two modes of operation with and without legs and you just kind of dovetail between the two in terms of getting by and you know if you want to call it that there are always limitations but it's just reframing your life I think you know what I mean that's the way it feels to me and I mean it's not, I know it takes different people different time people struggle etc accepting it for me was a massive thing and moving on yeah definitely and Dave you've mentioned to me by email that you find it fascinating how surgeons generally can kind of struggle to predict long term what will happen to patients so tell me a bit more about the research you're doing in this area I believe it's called Perceive the project that you're working on it's called Perceive and and I mean I I think it's really interesting we did a piece of work um, a couple of years ago in preparation for this and we saw we picked up the literature on how well surgeons can predict outcomes and in short term so first, let's say 30 days. Surgeons are pretty good at predicting what's going to happen to their patients after they operate on them, right? So are they likely to run into problems? Are they likely to survive the operation? And I think that's probably because as surgeons, you get immediate feedback to what happens. Yeah, You, you do the operation, you see what happens, and you're constantly therefore able to uh, adjust your predictions, what's going to happen. But what we showed is that predicting what's going to happen in about a year's time is as good as tossing a coin, surgeons are really poor at predicting what is likely to happen to people long term okay so uh, you know we've already touched on this really there is life after limb loss and it could be that for some people life is actually better with that amputation okay let's say they've got chronic wounds okay how can you predict as a surgeon which patient is going to fare better with an amputation versus continuing with dressings and potentially pain etc etc and you've got to therefore be able to have some idea of what's likely to happen to these people in the future. 
And uh, I think Perceive will be incredibly valuable. So we've we've asked predictions for over 500 patients already. Okay, so we've got over a thousand predictions on what people think is likely to happen to these patients undergoing surgery. And we're also seeing what about tools that are currently in use where you type in their age and what kind of operation they're having, et cetera, et cetera. And the tools predict, oh, yes, this person is likely to be able to walk with a prosthesis or this person is not likely to be able to walk with a prosthesis. And it's never been done before. And so I'm really excited to see what we're, what we're going to find, uh, because I think this could significantly impact uh, how surgeons operate across the country because rather than having all of these people which are basically just having guesses based on their experience and on to be honest their biases as well maybe we could bring a bit more rigor to the to the process maybe we could bring a bit more certainty and that may help people make the right decision or at least be patients be informed better about what is likely to happen it sounds really really amazing fascinating work that you're doing and I wanted to ask have you had any incidents where patients have perhaps visited the hospital and you know you have seen them and it and it's stuck in your mind or surprised you you know what the outcome has been have you got any incidents like that that you can share well I've got surprising well like or disappointing stories maybe um certainly one of the guys in our focus group came along and uh, he'd had some trauma and he said that the surgeon did multiple operate did 20 operations and then in the end offered an amputation and couldn't even look at him when he offered it to him uh, and basically walked out of the room uh, and that's again that cognition that, that maybe this is a failure uh, offering an amputation is a failure and then there are other times when actually you have very elderly people who have significant problems with their legs and as surgeons our initial instinct is to react. There's a problem, we need to fix it. We need to do an operation. And that's because we see a nail, we've got the hammer, let's hit it. (laughs) And I think it's fair to say that a number of times you realise that the patient unfortunately doesn't survive the surgery. Or if they do, they don't survive to discharge. And all you've done is you put that patient through a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, uh, potentially a lot of anxiety. When the right thing to do was actually to take a step back and speak frankly to the patients and to the family and saying, look, is this really the right thing for you? And so those two extremes, I think the the act the activity without carefully thinking it through and also the inactivity and perhaps just grasping the nettle by the hand was the right thing to do. I think seeing those two really interested me and and sort of inspired me with this with this perceived research and we won't delve too deeply into your personal biases here but has it altered your perception this research i think it's made me realize just how little we can be confident of outcomes Mm. okay i I mean okay fair enough if you've got some if you've got a very clear patient in front of you then i think it's very reasonable but i think also we've got to communicate with our patients where there's uncertainty and we have to say, look, I, I don't know. There is a degree of uncertainty with what I'm going to do with you or what I'm going to offer you. And Lawrence, has it surprised you how you learned to adapt and how you've adapted over the years? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you experience all sorts of things and you're in other people's hands a lot of the time, you know, to, uh, for instance, being advised about wheelchairs to start with, you know, it's a lot more significant and get being recommended wrongly, you know, for instance, and buying the wrong car and stuff like that, you know. So, yeah, it's very, it's a slow process. It can really be a slow process and educational and 
And it's excellent to finally get to that place when you know that everything works for you and what works best, that's for sure. I mean, go back to the um, my experience with surgery, which went on for so long, to have that, that sort of a three-way access between my trauma surgeon, my prosthetist, and my rehab consultant was it took forever to actually get there but when that would that for me was a very powerful position for me to be in you know what I mean and that would be an ideal situation I think if people could get round to that because one way or another there's three pieces of work there and you know going on and to have them joined up I think is very powerful. Yeah and tell us a bit about your kind of day-to-day adaptations you know perhaps giving some pointers for people that are kind of new wheelchair users or new amputees what are your sort of day to day adaptations that help make your life easier? One of the most important things and when you get into discussion about the possibilities of getting into back into your house and things are working, one of the most satis- satisfying things is having that bathroom that you can use. Uh, it was great to finally get that sorted out. I mean, I spent a couple of years sleeping on the sofa and uh, only being able to access the, uh, the bathroom via a stair lift and using the commode these are the realities you know especially of living in an unsuitable property but um eventually try to move to a place that's better for you that's for sure yeah indeed otherwise i'm always on my i'm always on my feet from pretty much first thing getting through the getting through the shower until it's time for bed and like other people might kick off their shoes i kick off my legs uh, and then, you know, I'm ready to relax and ready to go to bed and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And as a kind of parting thought, what would be your top piece of advice for other amputees, perhaps people that are listening to this and who are struggling? What would you say to them? I wouldn't doubt that there'd be a better outcome, you know, that's for sure. I, I, I mean, I know that what we've heard in, the, you know, our, our training, but uh, that's my experience anyway. I would say be patient, though, because sometimes it can be slow progress. But there is support out there to help, both in, in from the point of view of professional assistance and also from peer to peer like this. There are people that can help. I say, don't, don't uh, you know, keep faith, as it were. Absolutely, there's life after amputation. That's no doubt, no key, doubt whatsoever. Key message. Well, thank you both so much for talking to me today. It's been really lovely having you on and really fascinating as well. So remember, to find out more about the charity, you can find the Limbless Association on social media or visit our website, www.limbless-association.org. See you next time.